Welcome back for the fifth episode of the Appalachian Broncos podcast. I'm your host, Mark, once again joined by my co-host, Nate, coming in yet again via Zoom. What's up, everybody? It's great to be back after a win. Yes, it is. With the regular season winding down, we've got some interesting topics that we want to cover, so let's get down to it. Nate, what do you got in the weekly update? Yeah, so weekly update goes over our injuries, our COVID list, and our players in the news. So we'll start out with injuries. Garrett Bowles, he had to stay in Carolina last week, him and Noah Fan both, because of a non-COVID illness. Both of them will play. Um, they cleared all the tests and everything like that, so they are good to go. That's big. And then both of our running backs, Melvin Gordon and Philip Lindsay, are both questionable. Um, Gordon is dealing with a shoulder injury, and Philip Lindsay is dealing with a hip injury. So hopefully one or both of them will be able to give us some quality snaps on Saturday. Next up, Graham Glasgow has been improved to questionable with his um, foot injury. So hopefully we can get him back, although the line did play very well. What do you think of that line? Do you think we need Graham Glasgow back, Mark? Uh, I think it, we can afford not to rush him back at this point. Um, because Natane Muti, or Moody, however you say his name. Muti, whatever, yeah. yeah. He uh, played pretty well in his first career start, so, I mean, the more reps he gets, because he seems to be what they want to use as our future right guard, so... I best say a future starter out of him. Yeah, so, don't want to rush Graham Glasgow back, but we definitely could use the veteran leadership on the O-line. Yeah, I'm definitely, I won't be upset if he's not playing. It's not as um, big of a deal as it was earlier in the season with him. Um, next up, Trey Marshall is questionable with a shin injury, another hit to our defensive backfield. And then the biggest two injuries are Duke Dawson and Kel- Kel- uh, Kevin Tolliver are out and moved to IR with a, with knee injuries. Um, some ACL, MCL, PCL type stuff with both of them where they're not expected to come back for the remainder of the season. How do you feel about the three defensive backfield injuries that we had to deal with? Uh, I think those are huge losses to an already thinned out secondary. This is getting to be worse than when we lost our QBs against the Saints, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, we have now, what, like six defensive backs on IR or opt-out or suspended or something. Yeah, it's a big loss. I don't think the Broncos have had... I think the Broncos have had more specific position groups affected more than any other team this season. Yeah, I agree. So that kind of concludes our injury list. Mark, what do you have for our COVID update? So first and foremost, big news. uh, Strength and conditioning coach Lauren Landau tested positive today. So the Broncos had to cancel their walkthrough and they switched to all virtual meetings. Um, Brandon McManus was named a close contact due to someone that's not on the Broncos. And this will be, so he'll miss this week. Uh, Taylor Russellini will kick in his place, and this is Brandon McManus's first miss since 2014. What do you think of the kicking situation, Nate? Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting, although I do know, like I watched um, Mussolini play a little bit in the XFL, and I saw a highlight of him kicking, like just drilling a 58-yard field goal straight down the pipe. So, I mean, at least we got somebody kicking here who has a strong leg, and actually... I don't know if you know this, but McMahon was recommended to sign um, Mussolini from Pat McAfee. I think I saw that. What did you say? I said, I think I saw that on Twitter. It was, um, they worked together, they were 
paired up somewhere, and Pat McAfee apparently scouts people for McMahon. Now. Yeah, McMahon and McAfee have a history of working together in the NFL, and then McAfee was the commentator for one of Mussolini's games, and immediately after the game, he called McMahon and said, hey, if you ever have an issue at kicker, this is your guy. So, really, it's it's Pat McAfee picked our um, emergency kicker for us. The boy Pat, thanks very much. Shout out to the goat Pat McAfee. <laughs> Other uh, COVID news, Jeff Driscoll has been activated, so uh, Blake Bortles has been delegated back to quarantine QB. There's no need for him to show up to practices anymore. He does all of his business virtually, so we don't have another debacle like the Saints. And finally, Darius Kilgo has returned to the practice squad from the practice squad COVID list. So uh, what other players were in the news for us, Nate? Yeah, so some other players in the news. First thing, um, which will be crucial for this week, is Nate Harrison, the cornerback we signed from the Ravens. He is finally eligible to play this week. Um, with us losing two corners, it's very important that we have him come in back so we at least have players to put on the field at corner. Yeah. Um, also, we signed Farnell Motley off the 49ers. Um, practice squad. Um, he's in the same situation as Harrison and Will Parks, where he can't play this week. He has to wait till next week to get through all of his COVID protocols and tests. And then, as we kind of went over it, we signed Taylor Rusellini, who will replace McManus. And like I said, he's got a powerful leg, so hopefully, he can do everything we expect a kicker to do. That kind of finishes our weekly update. We'll kind of move on to the review of the Panthers game. What do you got for us, Mark? So I think the Panthers game went pretty well. I'll uh, review our keys from to winning the game from last week. So last week we said we had to stop the run, force the pass. We didn't really limit their rushing yards, but we did force them to throw 40 passes. Yeah, um, I, think that, I think our offense forced their offense to pass the boys. Our offense kind of got that lead. You know, forced them to be behind. I don't really think our defense did what we wanted them to, but it yeah. worked out in the end. Exactly, yeah. Uh, definitely had to deal with a lot of injuries and stuff, too, passing. Um, have we wanted us to do a heavy blitz to force deep balls? They weren't really uh, many hero throws by Teddy Bridgewater, but we did force four sacks, which is big for us, a team that, you know, is known for getting sacks. I think I saw a stat that we have, like, the third most – we're in the top five for first and second down sacks in the league. Yeah, yeah. I think we have 22 this season. Yeah, uh, it's a lot. Yeah, our third key to winning the game was play action shorter passes, and we definitely did that. Drew Locke took what the defenses were giving him. And, yeah, that's, um, the, that's the main thing when we say um, play action shorter passes. It doesn't mean only throw shorter passes. It just means that we want him to set up the long passes with shorter passes because – if you watch all the deep throws that Locke made last week, they were smart throws. Like, he didn't force any deep throws. He took mm-hmm. what was underneath and then found bombs when they were there. Yeah. Uh, did you uh, see the art, the interview he did that said Brett Rippon is actually one of the big reasons why he started taking more checkdown throws? No, I did not. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, he said Brett Rippon has been in his ear for weeks saying, hey, man, you just got to, you know, the deep ball will be there. You just got to chill and, like, you take the take what the defense gives you and then and then go over the top. Because we all know you can make the throw. You don't got to prove your arm strength to us every week. Hey, got to love our boy Brett. Might not be the most talented arm on the NFL, but, man, is he smart and is he a good guy. Brett Rippon might be the favorite player of this podcast. <laughs> Shout out the boy. And then finally, we, 
<laughs> Finally, we said a heavy dose of running attack, which the Broncos did not do well. Counting Drew Locke. We tried. We tried. Counting Drew Locke, we had three people carry the ball, and we only had 96 rushing yards, which seems to be something that has really affected us this season, but we'll get into that later. Yeah. What were your positives for this week, Nate? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's exciting to have more positives than negatives because I feel like just about every podcast we've done so far, it's been lopsided the other direction. So, first positive has to be Deontay Spencer's return touchdown. It's the first return touchdown we've had in four years. Um, something like that, some crazy stat. Um, if you watch the highlight, it's just so awesome how he sat down those two defenders <laughs> at the start yeah. and then found that gap and just hustled all the way down the field. Right. Um, ended up being an 83-yard pump return. Um, okay, so the stat is that the last pump return touchdown was in 2015 by Omar Bolden, dating it back to these real Broncos fans who know who Omar Bolden is. Yeah, the fun, funny thing is we mentioned him earlier. Do you know who kicked that punt? I do not. Who did kick that punt? Pat McAfee. Oh, you're right, you're <laughs> right, you're right. Yeah. Uh, okay, so next up, next positive has to be Drew Locke. He ended up getting, well, before I get to his award, Deontay Spencer did earn Special Teams Player of the Week for his return and all that stuff, so that's great. And then Drew Locke also earned the FedEx Air Player of the Week. He had a phenomenal game, possibly by far the best game he's had his whole career. He went 21 for 27 for 280 yards, four touchdowns, and at a 149.4 quarterback rating. Did you want to talk a little bit about his quarterback rating, Mark? So his quarterback rating, I think they said he's the first, he's the only player in the league this season to have that quarterback rating with the stats he did. And I yeah. think it's the highest quarterback rating a Broncos, it's like top three quarterback rating a Broncos QB has ever posted, if I believe. Yeah, it is top three. Peyton Manning... Uh, or top three player. His Peyton Manning had two passer ratings that were like short 150, and then John Elway had like a 153 or something like that. So mm-hmm. he's the third highest quarterback, fourth highest quarterback rating. That's what's up. You know, that was a big game from Drew. Uh, one stat on here. Do you want to talk about the other stat we have on here, Nate, or do you want me to get into that? Yeah, you, you can get into it. So, uh, so all year everybody has been roasting Drew Locke about his – you know, he takes the most deep shots down the field of, you know, throws 20-plus yards, and he's, like, 9 for 49 with, I think, like, five interceptions or something like that. But this week, completely flipped the script. He went 3 for 3 for 117 yards with two passing touchdowns on throws over 20 yards. What do you think about that, Nate? Yeah, I mean, it, it completely goes to what we talked about earlier, that he's taken the underneath passes and he's waiting for the right opportunity. We all know he's got a cannon. We all know he has the deep accuracy. It's just that he's finally kind of becoming a, more of a veteran attitude and waiting for those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. you got yeah, it. Then, yeah, next up we got um, the young receivers were a big positive. Um, we got to mention and talk about, like, the rookie spotlight later. Um, they just did, did a phenomenal job, and I don't want to kind of ruin the rookie spotlight, so we'll save the rookie receivers for later. Uh, next up, Will Parks had a phenomenal game. We we were all excited for his first game back with the Broncos, and he definitely performed exactly how we expected him. He had a lot of tackles. He had six tackles, one tackle for loss, and he had a sack. Um, 
our final positive is going to be the offensive line pass blocking. We only allowed one sack all game, and I mean that one sack was just a straight murder of Drew Locke. What do you think of our O line play? Uh, I think passing wise, Drew didn't have to move around that much. There's a couple of times where he had to bail out of the pocket, but he took the easy check down throw right in front of him. You know, a couple to Fumagalli, a couple to Bennett. Or yeah, a couple sidearm throws and stuff like that. Yep, definitely. Uh, you know, didn't really have to sit in the back there and run around like a maniac. So it was definitely better than it has been. It could have been better, yes, but I think for starting three new guys on the offensive line, it did a lot better than many people expected it to be. Yeah, I saw a couple of posts on Twitter and things like that of people saying that Drew Locke still has turnover battles because he fumbled again. What do you think of that fumble, Mark? Uh, there's nothing you could have done about that. I mean, people that say that have never played quarterback a day in their life. I mean... Drew Locke literally got the snap turn, had two defenders right in his face running full speed at him, and just got absolutely destroyed. I'm surprised he wasn't injured on the play. Actually, he got hit yeah, so hard. What do you think? That's what I would say. Is I would challenge every one of those critics to take that hit and hold on to a football. Not even worrying about passing it, mm-hmm. just worrying about holding on to it, and I bet they wouldn't be able yeah. to. Yeah, the way Jeremy Chin's been playing, I wouldn't want to take a full speed hit from that kid for anything. Yeah, okay. So that kind of finishes up our positives. Mark, what do you have for negatives of the game? So, first and foremost, uh, this is a negative that I'm starting to pile on more and more every week, and I know a lot of Broncos fans are going to hate me for this, but my number one negative was Philip Lindsay. Philip Lindsay, he had 11 carries, and he only averaged 2.2 yards per rush. I saw this stat, and I think it was, or this, this uh, quote, and it was like a running back that has double-digit carries that's averaging less than four yards a carry is not doing what the team asked him to do. What do you think about that, Nate? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of tough. And I know we're going to talk about running backs later, so I don't want to get into it. But yeah. I'm not on the get rid of Lindsey train as much as you are, so I think we'll kind of have a fun discussion later on yeah, we about got it. it. we got a good one in store for you later on in the podcast. Second negative is going to be Brandon McManus. He uh, went very uncharacteristic this week and missed two extra points, and that almost killed us. Yeah, it honestly looked like, like I don't, I don't want to say he wasn't trying, or it just seemed like he wasn't focused. Like, like I he feel like his, it. Yeah, his routine wasn't the same, and when he missed it, like he was obviously upset about it, but like he didn't seem like as shocked as he was when he missed like the fifty-eight yard field goal mm-hmm. attempt two weeks ago. Yeah, so you, I, don't, I don't know what was going on with his head, or I feel like something else was going on we don't know about. And you and you and I both know how fickle kicking can be. So yeah. Uh, then third third negative I got is injuries. We lost Tolliver and Duke Dawson for the entire year, which, you know, just depleted our secondary down to three healthy corners, which is, you know, the and those three corners that have been on the team for the majority of the season, the, the now healthy corners that we have now, like two of them haven't even been in the Broncos system before. So yeah. that's a big Or haven't one. been on the team for the last three weeks. Exactly. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think... It's tough, and it kind of shows, like, it, you got to respect um, Donatel, and you got to respect Fangio because, honestly, our passing defense has been doing well. Yeah. And I just I just can't fathom how it's doing as well as it is. Because, like, it's not top of the league, but, like, when you have your fifth and your sixth string corner as your two number one and number two starting cornerbacks, mm-hmm. and you're still not getting blown up every game, like, that's insane. So it's... A lot of respect to Fangio and Donatello. Yeah, that goes into my final um, 
negative, which was the second half secondary. Fangio said that the secondary played out of their mind the first half, but if you watch the game, you could see they slowly started. It seemed like they were maybe getting tired or something. They slowly started to give up on. Um, well, yeah, and I don't know stuff. if it's it's them giving up, but you got to think like when you have young and experienced guys playing against like Bridgewater, who's an experienced quarterback, and they had a couple receivers who had a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, they go into halftime, and Robbie Anderson or Curtis Samuel say, "Hey, this dude is falling for this move," and then they kind of switch the game plan to play on the mistakes or the. Um, inability of these young corners. So I think that's what the main second half struggle is, is teams figure out how to how to play against them. Yeah, and just to throw that back out there for people saying, oh, if you guys are so worried about, uh, you know, the new corners not being on the team the whole year, why didn't we keep Devontae Harris? And if you watched the Monday night game between Cleveland and Baltimore, uh, you would have saw I texted it. you, like, laughing about that. He played... So bad that game. He got it, away with so many penalties that game. I was about to say, he was holding or something like every other play and just wasn't getting penalties. Like, I was like, man, Harris would have been a great corner for us if they didn't call penalties on him like they're doing right now. Yeah, he would have been top is, corner in the league. Yeah, he just got called for all those penalties in Denver and for some reason didn't get called him in that close game, Ravens and Browns. Yeah, what a game that was. So that will end our uh, recap of last week. We got a new uh, segment on here that we think this might actually be the last week this year that we can yeah, run this segment. Yeah, hopefully not, but I want to get into our playoff hopes because we are, as many people may not notice, still alive and still have a chance to make the playoffs. Um, big thing that happened on Thursday is the Raiders lost to the Chargers. That was something that we needed to happen. Um, to keep our playoff hopes alive, so we are still in the playoff hunt. May it be a one per, less than 1% chance right now, but I'll kind of walk us through what we need. So for this week, what we need to happen is the Raiders to lose, which already happened. We need the Ravens to lose to the Jaguars, and we need the um, Dolphins to lose to the Patriots. And along with that, we need to beat the Bills. Now for this week, the two toughest things are going to be us beating the Bills, because we all know how good the Bills are, and we'll get into that later on. And then the Ravens losing to the Jaguars because we saw how phenomenally they played against the Browns, and the Jags have not been playing great. Jags are second-worst team in the league, so. Yeah, although the Ravens are missing some people, so it could be Mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. Um, I think it's very plausible that the Dolphins um, lose to the Patriots. Patriots are still a solid team. Mm -hmm. I think it's plausible that the Broncos win, which we'll get to later. And I think the toughest thing that we need to happen this week for us to continue our playoff hopes is having the Jags beat the Ravens. Yep. Um, Now, past this week, what we need to happen um, for the rest of the year, week 16 and 17, is honestly not that too bad besides two games. So we need to beat the Chargers, which I think we can do. We need to beat the Raiders, which we can do that. We need the Raiders to beat the Dolphins, which honestly I think the Raiders are a better team than the Dolphins. Um, We need the Dolphins to lose their Week 17 game against the Bills, which the Bills are better than the Dolphins. Bills are one of the best teams in the league. Yeah, those four four games I think are going to go our way no matter what. You got one more down there too. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Um, And we need the Patriots to lose to the Bills. Or the Jets. So the Patriots play the Bills week 16. I'm almost positive the Patriots are going to lose that game. Mm-hmm. Um, and if not, 
it'll come down to the Jets beating the Patriots, which I just don't think the Jets can beat anybody. Although they do but, have pretty good history beating the Patriots late in the season, though. That is true, but the other question is, do they want to beat the Patriots? Absolutely not, because they do not want to risk getting Trevor Lawrence. Or risk missing getting Trevor Lawrence. Yep. Yeah. So that's five games um, that I think are going to fall in our favor. So I'm not too worried about those five. The Basically, the three games or four games I'm worried about are the Broncos winning this week against the Bills, the Ravens beating the Jags or losing to the Jaguars this week, and then we also need the Ravens to lose to the Giants in Week 16, which is going to be tough, and we're going to need the Ravens to lose to the Bengals in Week 17. So basically what you need to know for us to make the playoffs, this week Broncos have to win, Ravens lose, Dolphins lose, and then in the future – we just got to root against the Ravens because yep. the Ravens have three very winnable games and we need them to lose all three. Um, I think if the Ravens lose out, I think we make the playoffs in all honesty. Like, yeah, we have less than a 1% chance, but I think it's all going to come down to the Ravens. Yep. It's definitely, I mean, you definitely don't have to worry about like me rooting against the Ravens as I uh, have made it well known on this podcast, how I feel about them. So yeah, me, me and Mark both being Maryland, um, Maryland Rays, we've dealt with a lot of... Um, Annoying Ravens fans. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I was trying to trying to figure out how to word that. So when, you, when you're around that fan base who is so thin, I would say, as they one week are full support of their team and the next week want to get rid of everybody, including Justin Tucker, who's the best kicker in the league, mm-hmm. um, it's just hard to root for the Ravens after dealing with those fans. Exactly. Yeah. They the fans ruin it because I mean there's a lot of players on the Ravens that I like, but the fans just make me despise the team. Yeah. In, in general. So that'll kind of finish our breakdown of our playoff hopes, which still have a little bit of optimism. It is possible, more possible than we probably think it is. And we'll go to Mark's weekly Bronco breakdown. What are you doing this week, Mark? All right, so last week I did the secondary. I did some uh, little rundown on some stats for certain players in there and how we could improve on the next season. So this week we're going to take a look at another underlooked position on the Broncos because people think that we're set here for years, but I believe that we are not, and I'm talking about the running backs. Yeah, I'll be very interested for this because I don't think the running back is the main position we need to improve. So this will be a the fun little topic for us. Yep. So we'll start off with Melvin Gordon, our one of our big free agency acquisitions. Um, he has 753 yards rushing this year, six rushing touchdowns. His longest run was 65 yards. I believe that was against the – was that against the Jets or the Chiefs? Do you remember? It was against the Chiefs. The Chiefs. He is – unfortunately, he has four fumbles. That's the only bugaboo about Melvin Gordon is the man cannot hold on the ball to save his life. In the receiving game, he has been our main weapon out of the backfield. He has 24 catches for 121 yards and one touchdown. And I just want to say, you were completely against Melvin Gordon up through week like eight. Yeah, this is definitely me doing a complete 180 on both of these guys that we're about to talk about right here. Yes, sir. And so we're going to get into a tier guy, my, you know, most Broncos fans, guys. I mean, I love him for the, what he's, everything he's contributed to the team. Everything about the save right here doesn't discredit anything he's done for the team. And we're going to talk about Philip Lindsay, who's having the worst year of his career. I mean, granted, it has been, you know, derailed by injuries and he has to split carries with Melvin Gordon now. 
But what do you what, uh, do you want to talk about Phil Lindsay or do you want me to talk about him, Nate? Yeah, I could talk about him a lot because I know at this segment you're going to kind of not rip Phil Lindsay a new one, but kind of go about how you think that we should move on from him. And I'm just not on that boat yet. My main thing about it is that like every single year, every single podcast we've done, Philip Lindsay has been on the um, injury weekly update, and it's been for important body parts for running back, like ankle, knee, foot, things like that that really affect his mobility. And his mobility is why he's a good running back. He's not a good running back because he can run through people like Melvin Gordon or Izzy can catch well. He's a great running back because how shifty is it. And that kind of shows the stats with how he has two catches this year for like 14 yards and like no receiving touchdown and stuff. And then has more of his better stats, even though they're not great in the running game. Yeah. So yeah. I'm definitely not going on. I'm still cutting up some slack. Yeah. I just, I've just been, you know, you can add anybody that, uh, that knows Phil Lindsay has not been playing well the last couple of games. He's, you know, getting less than 50 yards a game. He only has 464 yards on the season. One rushing touchdown. His 55-yard touchdown came in that crazy comeback one against the Chargers, which actually yeah. inspired us to start doing the podcast. So, I mean, he, he has had his moments this season where he shows flashes, but it's just something that seemed off about him. And I know the injuries are one thing, but it's just it just seems like I've noticed. Tell me if you've noticed this too. It seems the, the O-line doesn't block as well for him. Well, yeah, that's another thing I was going to say, which I don't think it's the O-line doesn't block as well. Um, Pat Shermer had a couple interviews this week where he talked about how, like, I know everybody hates to hear this, but the uh, new offense takes time. And he says that, like, Melvin Gordon's starting to play well because the offense is finally coming to a realization of, like, being good, at what Pat Shermer wants it to be. And if you look at Lindsey's stats – as Melvin Gordon has gotten better, what has Philip Lindsay done? Got worse. Yep. And it's because he's gone away from those stretch runs, which Philip Lindsay has done so well running off the tackles. And he switched to this run game where it's straight up the middle, which is more Melvin Gordon suit. So yeah. I think it's a lot of play calling issues where they're calling running plays for Melvin Gordon to be successful and expecting a smaller guy in Philip Lindsay to still be successful yeah. on those plays. Which just isn't going to happen. All the spotlights that Philip Lindsay shows great are always running out to the outside stretch in the defense. So yeah, it just comes down to the fact that Philip Lindsay just simply is not a fit for Pat Shermer's offense. He's, yeah, he's just not. Pat Shermer likes running backs like Saquon Barkley, obviously, and Philip Lindsay is nowhere near the skill set that Saquon Barkley has. But not even the skill set, just the the physique. Yeah. The the one thing Saquon Barkley does have over Philip Lindsay is the receiving ability, and then yeah, so, so and then there's one more running back that's on the active roster now that a lot of people forget about. You know, my boy Royce Freeman. I was huge on him God, coming out of college. Still love him. Yep, never really panned out, but you know he has 75 rushing yards this year. His longest run 13 yards. Shout out Royce. He's got seven catches for 42 yards out of the backfield. He's usually used as a pass blocker. Hey, I gotta say though, when we got Royce, it was to replace Monty Ball. Yep. And he sure as, sure as heck replaced Monty Ball's role. <laughs> mm-hmm. But here we go. This is the part about this segment that I'm most excited for because I am a huge draft geek. I love the NFL draft. Uh-huh. Favorite time of season. So we're going to talk about some players that we can bring in 
to potentially replace Philip Lindsay next year. And all four of the guys, unlike last week, I had Patrick Peterson in free agency. I took a look at the free agency list this year for running backs or for next year. And the names were like Todd Gurley, Kenny and Drake, Le'Veon Bell. And I don't think any three of those guys would be a good fit to pair with Melvin Gordon. I think we should get a younger guy so we can keep him for, you know, four, four or five years. And I'm going to start off with my favorite player in this draft, actually, uh, the running back out of Clemson, number nine, Travis Etienne, who is touted as, you know, one of the best running backs in recent memory in college football. He has, for his career at Clemson, he has 4,796 rushing yards and 68 rushing touchdowns. He also added the backfield, which is big for Pat Shermer's offense, which is why I think the Broncos might try to make a move to get this guy. 95 catches for 1,079 yards and eight receiving touchdowns. What do you think yeah, about that? A dual threat guy. I mean, do you yeah, think- I'm not sure if I'm one to draft a running back in the first round, but we'll kind of get to that after you get through everybody. Yep. My next guy on here is Javante Williams, the running back from University of North Carolina, your favorite school, Nate. I figured you'd hey, appreciate I, this one. I love him. If you watched his highlight from the other weekend of him um, just stiff-arming a guy to the ground, and he had another couple highlights of just making people fall on their butt. Yeah. He's a great athlete. Definitely check out his tape versus the University of Miami where UNC ran all over them. Yeah. So Javante Williams for his career has 2,297 yards and 29 rushing touchdowns. He has 50 catches out of the backfield for 539 yards and four touchdowns. So about half as much as Travis Etienne, but if he played, if he continued that, he'd probably get on the same level as Travis Etienne. So he's got Plus, about... you got you to realize that UNC doesn't really use their running backs as an outlet yep. pass as much as um, Clemson does. Yeah, and Travis Etienne's a four-year player at Clemson. I believe Javante Williams has only played at UNC for three years. So Yeah. And so my third guy, Najee Harris, for all you Alabama fans out there, uh, I'm sure Jerry Judy would probably uh, campaign for John Elway to draft his former teammate. He has... For his career, 3,461 rushing yards and 42 rushing touchdowns with 64 catches, 605 receiving yards, and seven receiving touchdowns. You know, those are pretty big numbers. You know, seven yeah. seven receiving touchdowns is a lot. And as you, if you notice, even with my fourth guy I'm about to talk about here, they all have at least 50 career catches, which is something big. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the weak point. If you're trying to replace Phil Lindsay, which I know – I'm not completely on board with. You got a replacement with somebody who can do what he's not good at, which is catch the ball. Mm-hmm. One thing about Najee Harris's receiving touchdowns that I did realize was interesting is all seven of them came last year. His his junior. Oh really? Yeah, they all came last season. None his first two years. None this current year. They all came last year. I wonder why that is. I have no idea. I think maybe they used him more as an outlet uh, receiver back then, maybe more in the red zone. I'll have to check his tape out because I know I'm just going to dive into some tape for all the top guys at every position when this season ends, when I can focus more on the draft. And my final guy, who a lot of people um, touted as the number one running back in the nation coming into the season outside of Travis Etienne, he actually, I'm pretty sure, just opted out for the remainder of the season to prepare for the draft, is uh, Chuba Hubbard from Oklahoma State who has, as for his career totals, 3,459 rushing yards and 33 rushing touchdowns and 53 catches for 479 yards and three receiving touchdowns. So what do you, what do you think about those four guys, Nate? I mean, I wouldn't draft any of them where we're picking in the first round. Assuming that we're picking in like the late mid to late teens, I don't 
think we would use we should use that pick as at a running back. I think we could get a way better deal of drafting a corner. A I young, totally agree. A talented corner. Now, if maybe in the second round one of these guys is available, yeah, I support it completely. Yeah, I def- you, what you, you provide say? extra pressure for Philip Lindsay. Um, if Philip Lindsay continues to do bad, you already have the replacement on the roster, things like that. And I'm a big supporter of taking the most talented player. Yep. I definitely would argue if Travis Etienne is not picked in the top 15 and he's still available in the late 20s or even the early second round, we should definitely jump up from our second round pick and take him because I believe that Travis Etienne is a younger, faster Melvin Gordon, in my opinion, with, you know, looking at the stats. I don't think I would trade up. I think what would be the more likely route of us getting him would be us not having that corner we wanted that 15 to 19 spot and mm-hmm. us trading back. Yeah, in and case Farley, Wade, or Sterner going. Another first-round pick and a, like, early second round or something like that so that we get good compensation and we get this extremely talented running back and another guy. Yeah, and, you know, Travis Etienne definitely would be another good running back to add to the, you know, list of great Broncos running backs, Floyd Little, Terrell Davis, Mike Anderson, uh-huh. Clinton Portis, C.J. Anderson, yeah. even Willis McGahee. You know, Broncos have a tradition of having good running backs. Philip Lindsay, great guy, great running back. Um, He's not in this system. Yeah, just it's, this is not yet in this system. Yeah, Tra- this, those four guys are better fit for Pat Shermer's offense than Philip Lindsay. And, I mean, I hope... I mean, I don't hope Phil Lindsay, but I mean, if Phil Lindsay goes somewhere, I hope he has an amazing career. Makes me eat my words, you know. I would love. Yeah, I mean, we see what he's done. We we know what he can do. It's just yeah. being set up for success. Just hopefully he doesn't go to the Ravens like he almost did in his draft year. Yeah, I can't handle that. All right. So that's gonna finish my uh, my weekly Bronco breakdown. Uh, that was a pretty good exchange that we had there. You know, it's cool when Nate and I have differing opinions on things because it's good to get the aspect of both. So we're going to go into Nate's really cool segment now of Wayback Bronco. Who do you got for us this week, Nate? Yeah, so this week we got Pat Boland, the GOAT of the Broncos. Um, I think probably the most important person involved with the Broncos of all history, even more so than John Elway. Um, He was with the team from 1984 to 2019, and he was enshrined in the Hall of Fame in 2019. Um... He was born February 18th, 1944, in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. I, I, when I read it, I was like, was he born somewhere overseas? Yeah, and was same. shocked when the, when the state name was Wisconsin with that um, town name. Must be some kind of French name. Yeah, so as we all, all Broncos know, Pat Boland passed away last year, June 14th, 2019, at 75 years of age due to Alzheimer's. Rest in peace to he the battled game. that basically from 2014 um, until his death. And it was very hard on every Broncos fan, which is why last week when I talked about John Elway saying this one for Pat was so emotional for any diehard Broncos fan who's followed the organization in depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Pat Bullen was the Broncos' chief executive officer from from the club's per, when he purchased the club in 1984 until July of 2014, and he still owned the team after 2014. It wasn't until 
um, his death that the team went to new hands, which is still kind of up in the air, which I bet would be a great segment for your um, Bronco breakdown would be our organizational structure at the top. Yeah, that will definitely be a good one. Might have to go into that next week. I might have to stay tuned for that one if you want to hear about yeah, that. That would be awesome. Um, he was elected to the Broncos Ring of Fame in 2015, which is right when he stopped becoming the chief executive but still was the owner. We put him up there in the Ring of Fame in our stadium. Um, he had more than 400 consecutive sellouts as a Broncos owner. Um, that is insane. insane to think that just about every single game that he was the owner for, or literally every game he was the owner for, the Broncos sold out every seat in their state. 75,000 seats they sold out. Yeah, that's, that is just insane. Because as an owner, you want the team to succeed – and it's a more of a business, so you want to have fans, mm-hmm. and he succeeded in that. And meanwhile, uh, you have teams like the Redskins, which my family season tickets to, that in order to make it seem like they're selling out, they started taking seats out of the stadium. Yeah. Okay, so next up, um, he's the only owner in NFL history to achieve 300 victories during his first 30 seasons. If you average that out, that's having a 10-win season every year. Obviously, some years were worse, some years were better, but 300 wins over 30 years is averaging a 10-6 record, which is insane in the NFL to average that for 30 seasons. Um, He also had the second-highest regular season winning percentage of all of any NFL team during his ownership. And what I think is an insane stat is he has the third-highest winning percentage in American sports. I did not know that. Yeah, so, like, not just football, like, including the MLB and the NBA. And, like, every sport, he has the third highest winning percentage as an owner. That's insane. Insane stats. Um, So, he had 21 winning seasons, um, won 13 divisional titles, won nine conference championships, or made it to nine conference championships, and went to seven Super Bowls. So, if you do the math there... He went to nine conference championships and won seven of those nine games. That's like almost automatic. Mm -hmm. Um, A crazy stat for you here, Mark. We went to seven Super Bowls under his ownership, and we had seven losing seasons. How crazy is that? That's wild. Seven must be a lucky number for Denver because, I mean, we went – John Elway was number seven. Craig Morton was number seven. Three Super Bowl appearances – or more than three Super Bowl appearances combined between them, but – you know, number seven's a good number for Denver. Luckily, it is retired now. Yeah, I mean, seven, seven, seven. It's our yep. it's our holy number. Yes, sir. Uh, we also had three Super Bowl victories. Obviously, we went over John Elway's two last week, and we also won Super Bowl 50 um, towards the end of Pat's tenure. Um, Pat was – or, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Pat Bowlen was also called the father of Sunday night football. Do you know why he was called that, Mark? Wasn't he one of the um, like first like integral parts of like creating it, basically? Yes. Like... Yeah, basically. So um, he had a lot of say and impact on the NFL, not just because he was the Broncos owner, but in like the TV and stuff like that. Like he he had a major factor in creating NFL ne- Network, which is like America's Game, NFL Live, like all that stuff. Pat. Pat Bolin is a big part of why that happened. Um, 
Also, he was a key figure in securing the league's labor and TV contracts. He served as the co-chair of the NFL Management Council Executive Committee from 2001 to 2011 and formerly chaired the prestigious NFL Broadcasting Committee. So he was very, very important with outside of the gameplay of the Broncos. And he was responsible for negotiating the NFL's $18 billion TV contract, which was the most lucrative single sport contract in history. That's why he's called the father of Sunday Night Football because of the impact he had with the TV deals and things like that. Um, He definitely had a big impact on our organization, turned our organization up and to the sky, and he had a big impact on the NFL as a whole, whether it's TV and everything. Pat Bowlen is the GOAT. Did you have any other things about Pat Bowlen, Mark? Yeah, so speaking on how big of the uh, impact in the league he was, you know how I usually come at somebody, like do a little snide comment about somebody every week. I'm coming at you, NFL Pro Football Hall of Fame. I don't know why I just said NFL Pro Football Hall of Fame, but Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee. How dare you induct Jerry Jones before Pat Bowlen? That, I agree. I agree. That's that's just uh, that is that is a travesty. Pat Bowen is the most influential owner of all time. Just because Jerry Jones, you know, goes on his talk shows and does his interviews and everything, you know, they say they say leaders move in silence. You know, Pat Bowen is the most influential leader ever. You know, like Nate said, all these accolades. You know, best winning percentage of any American sport. Thirty. 300 wins in 30 seasons. What's, what's Jerry Jones doing? When was the last time the Cowboys won a Super Bowl? The 90s? Yeah, yeah. My other thing is, like, not only did Pat Bowlen have all these things with, like, the TV contracts and stuff, he also had a big impact, which I didn't write on here, but um, in the player negotiations. Like, he was a big-time supporter of players getting their contracts so that they could go from team to team and things like that, which was back in the day, if a team had your contract – you couldn't do anything about it but play for them. And Pat Bowlen was one of the guys which not a lot of the owners supported it because they wanted to have full rights of their players. And Pat Bowlen was one of the guys who kind of supported the athletes yeah. and letting them have that freedom. Exactly. Pat Bowlen was an owner for the players, for the league. Jerry Jones, all he cares about is money. And that's the last thing I'm going to say on that. Yeah, yeah. That's, and that's a good, good thing to leave on. I like that point that... Pat Bolin is very dis- like he's very underappreciated in his impact, and a lot of people don't know about him because the Broncos aren't America's team, or the Broncos aren't the 49ers. Or Cowboys, ha- Cowboys haven't been America's team since the '90s. No matter how hard the NFL tries to push that narrative, yeah, obviously hit a hit a um, pressure point with Mark there. Yeah. Um, so Mark, we'll get onto something a little bit more optimistic towards the future. Let's get towards our rookie spotlight. I know I'm looking forward to these rookie receivers. Spots. All right, here we go. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, the rookie receivers had a great game. It might not look great on paper for Jerry Judy, you know, two catches for 42 yards. But if you watch some of the plays where other receivers had big catches, like Hamler's second touchdown or Tim Patrick's huge one, they used Jerry Judy as decoys. And he was drawing two, three defenders on him. And that's yeah. unheard there, of there for a rookie receiver. There was one play where I saw where he had like four people 
all focused on him. That is literally unheard of for a rookie receiver. And that's definitely, when you look at things like that, you can see why Jerry Judy is not getting the catches we expected him to because we all expected Cortland Sutton to be opposite of him, drawing all the attention. But now Jerry Judy, as a lot of people assume, is the Broncos' best receiver, so they focus everything on him. And he's his route running on his big catch he had, oh, he destroyed that corner. What do you think about that? cornerback did not know where he was. He juked him off the screen. And then, obviously, we have K.J. Hamler, who had two catches for two touchdowns, you know, 86 yards. And he he made the corners look silly. He made the one corner just completely fall down on his coverage, and the other one, he just completely outran him on the post route. What do you think about K.J.'s game? Hey, um, when we drafted him, everybody was talking about how Henry Ruggs is the next Tyree Kill. And I said, K.J. Hamler, question mark? I right. mean, I'm so glad. built like Tyreek. Maybe he doesn't have, like, the stats and everything like that, but the dude is fast. The dude is explosive, and he just takes the top off the defense. Thank you, Las Vegas Raiders, for drafting Henry Ruggs so the Broncos did not panic and draft him. Thank you for doing (laughs) that for us. Yeah. Third rookie spotlight we're going to throw in is Michael Ojemudia, who definitely now has been thrust into a much boosted role. He is now our number one corner, going from a bench player a couple weeks ago to now our starting cornerback. He hey, had a, he's been playing well. Mm-hmm. He had a 62 coverage grade, and he allowed six catches for 84 yards and no touchdowns. But, I mean, obviously, when you're a young guy that doesn't have that much experience and they're going to pick on you, you got to guard Robbie Anderson, who's one of the fastest receivers in the league. How do you think Ojemudia yeah. played, Nate? Yeah, for the situation he's in, he's playing phenomenal. I mean, as any third-string corner, rookie third-string corner, you wouldn't expect anything better than what he's doing right now. Exactly. And then, so finally, we have one last guy on here who got his first career start. Shout out. And that's a big accomplishment in the NFL in its own right. Natane Muti, he started at right guard from us. Um, he allowed, he was credited with allowing the sack on Drew Locke. But ob- honestly, I mean, that, that was a heavy blitz. There's no way. You can't really credit that on anybody. That was just a perfectly timed blitz by the Panthers. He allowed three pressures, and he his ratings, according to Pro Football Focus, were not that good. 40.3 pass block grade and 64.4 run block grade, but I watched a couple of highlights of him. Some Denver media pass people... Pass don't always tell the whole story. Exactly. Some Denver media people have been posting like a little play-by-plays of him. He actually played really well, and I think he's going to be a beast for us. What do you think about him? Yeah. yeah, he moved extremely well, and he picked up all of the, like, just about all of his cues and everything, so... Just, I was impressed. Yeah, just got to coach him up and get him in there. So that that will uh, end our rookie spotlight. It gets shorter and shorter every week because the Broncos just keep getting knocked out for the season. So <laughs> we're going to hop into our preview of the Bills game. I'll let you uh, take that away, Nate. Yeah, so I've kind of been looking forward to the preview of the Bills game for a while as I have some Bills fans. Shout out Don Vogel. I'm going to beat you at tennis next time I see you this summer. Um, and because I went to the Broncos-Bills game in Buffalo last time that we played them. And, I mean, before I get into anything, I want to shout out the Bills. You have an, you have a hilarious fan base. Um, I wouldn't say nice, but hilarious. Um, very welcoming and, of course, a Buffalo Bills kind of way. And your stadium is beautiful. Uh, much respect to you. Um, but... That viewing of that game that I had a couple years ago is definitely going to impact some of my thoughts on here that might be outlandish to what some of the other critics are saying. Um, to start with the Bills' stats, they are 10-3, and 4-0 in their division. 
Um, obviously, their division is not as good as it once was with the Patriots playing the way they are this year. Dolphins are good, but they're young and inexperienced, and the Jets are the Jets. Yeah. Um, some rankings overall, they're 10th offense, they're 7th defense, they're 23rd special teams, they're 5th. Some of their averages, offense, they average 27.6 points per game, pretty high number, um, 273 pass yards per game, and 103 rush yards per game. Great offensive stats. Uh, defensively, 24.7 points per game, 250 pass yards per game, and 120 rush yards per game. So hopefully we can kind of um, get that rushing game going for us. Um, Mark, what do you think we should watch for in this game? Uh, definitely number one key is how well this Broncos secondary is going to hold up against these speedy receivers and this pass attack of the Bills, which we'll get into a little bit later. But most importantly, the corners. We, we're going to have three corners playing. We're going to have Bosby, Ojemudia, and I'm not even 100% sure who the third corner is going to be. Do you know who it's going to be? Harrison. Harrison, a guy that hasn't even played for us this season. That's yeah, insane. practice squad guy. Yeah. So that's going to put a lot of pressure on Justin Simmons and Cream Jackson. I expect Will Parks to get a ton of playing time this game. Yeah, he's going to play everything this week. Yeah, I think he might play every defensive snap this week. Yeah. Who? Uh, who? So going into that, who worries you on the Bills specifically? Yeah. So I mean, obviously Stefan Diggs. Um, he has a hundred catches this year for almost 1,200 receiving yards and five touchdowns. Um, when I went to the game last year, he didn't have that big of an impact, but this year he's on a different level. He is possibly – he is top five receiver in the league right now. He is doing phenomenal things with his route running. He is extremely fast, physical, great at high-pointing the ball on catches. Um, he's having the best gonna down, It's going to come down to our safeties – holding Stefan Diggs because I know our corners aren't going to be able to limit him the whole game. Exactly. Um, next guy I'm worried about is Cole Beasley, which in that game I went to, um, he's the reason he tore us up. He had a touchdown catch, things like that. Cole Beasley is um, a new age Wes Welker. He yep. is I mean, obviously not as good as Wes Welker, but he is very shifty. He gets catches. He has 71 catches for just shy of 150 yards and four touchdowns. He just knows how to get open, which is going to be the main issue, I think, um, because our corners aren't going to be experienced with all these small, small like route combos he's going to be running. Exactly. Um, next up, Josh Allen sticking with a passing game. Um, he has 3,600 passing yards, 28 touchdowns, nine interceptions, and he also has 350 rush yards for six rush touchdowns. Um, his running ability is what I'm more scared of than his passing ability. I mean, yep. obviously, he's challenging for the, the strongest arm in the NFL with Patrick Mahomes and things like that. But the last time we played the Bills, he ran and converted so many third downs. It wasn't his arm, which obviously he's improved his passing mm-hmm. game a lot. But I definitely, like, I definitely expect him to stretch, try to stretch the field on the corners early. But as we saw, Teddy Bridgewater even tore us apart with his running ability last week, and he blew yeah, me out a couple years ago. Yeah, it's just something that we're not great at covering. Um, now, here is what you could call a Hail Mary worry player. Um, I have Devin Singletary on here. He does not have a phenomenal stats this year. 580 yards, one touchdown, 32 catches for 231 receiving yards. Um 
my why I put him on here is because of the confidence he's going to have knowing what he did to us last year or two years ago, whenever it was. Um, he kind of torched us. He he was that outlet receiver, and he was just shifty enough that he just kind of tore our defense apart last time we played him. So I'm still, even though he's not having a phenomenal year, I'm still very cautious of Devin Singletary. Um, that kind of concludes the people that worry us. Um, what are some keys we need to do to win this game, Mark? So definitely win the time of possession. we got to limit Josh Allen and this passing offense's time on the field and let our defense rest. Let them get coached up on the sideline. After every drive, I want that DB's coach. I want I want him in their face being like, look, this is what you got to do to guard this guy. Do this, do this, do this. And let's just you know, run the ball, run the ball, drive down the field on him. We're not going to score a ton of points against this Bills defense. And we, we like I said, we just got to limit our defense's time on the field. Another thing is we got to turn this game into an old slugfest. We just got to force ourselves to impact their minds. We got to hit them in the mouth, come out and hit them as hard as we can. That was something we used to yeah. do in rugby. Yeah, you just sit. I definitely agree with that because um, if they're not scared, they're gonna just destroy us. We need to make them scared. We need to have the O line at least question. Mm-hmm. Man, this dude's gonna pop me. I can stop him, but he's gonna hit me and make them question. Man, do I want to be hit again? Do I want to take this hit as I'm throwing the ball for Allen, or do I want to catch this ball when I know I'm about to get popped by um, Kareem Jackson? Kareem like, Jackson we need needs a to big game. Make our old style football presence made. Yeah, and then final final thing I got is we gotta win the turnover battle. Something the Broncos haven't done all year. You know. We got to give the offense a short field and limit their offensive momentum. I want Bradley Chubb, Malik Reed, Alexander Johnson, Josie Jules, Sean Williams, Shelby Harris. I want everybody in that backfield making Josh Allen panic, making him get outside the pocket. I know he can run. Hey, and, and shout out Alexander Johnson for getting his hundredth tackle, first time he's ever done that. At a boy, but you know, definitely you want him panicking because a, quarter, a lot of quarterbacks can throw on the run, but you know they tend to make more panic decisions. Because like, oh man, I got to get rid of this ball, or they. If we can even make Josh Allen hesitate half a second on whether or not he should throw or run, that gives our pass rush that much more time to sack him. Yep. Which is big. Uh, so that'll that'll basically wrap it up for our preview. What do you what do you think the score is going to be this week, Nate? Yeah. So. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to say it. I think the Broncos are going to pull an upset this week. Mm-hmm. I have not called the Broncos to win an upset yet this year. Um, and this is the game that I'm going to pick it. I think that since we lost to the Saints and all that stuff happened with the NFL and everything, our team has just been so close. We've been playing so hard. We barely lost the Chiefs. We played a perfect game or close to perfect game against the Panthers. Um, I know it's not a smart choice to pick the Broncos to win this game, but I'm going 24-20 Broncos. And I think that it's going to come down to a fourth-quarter drive. And I think the Bills are going to get all the way into the red zone, and the Broncos are just going to find some way, somehow, to stop them and win that game. If we were NFL Network analysts, you'd definitely be getting the lone wolf hat right now. Oh, yeah, by far. My, my prediction, total total 180 from Nate's. I, I think what's going to happen is the Broncos' secondary is just slowly going to get picked apart by this Bills passing attack. I think we might even be winning at halftime, maybe, you know, 10, 10 to 3, 10 to 7. But I have the final score, Bills blowing us out 42 to 17, just because I think the secondary is just not going to be able to handle that passing attack. 
Hey, and you'd be right in the pack with every other analysis. Exactly. Yeah, so that kind of concludes the score prediction. Let's get to our Hail Marys. I know you're upset about last week's um, game, Mark. Yep, my prediction last week was the Broncos have 400 yards total offense. They were 35 yards shy of that. I was almost on getting my second prediction right, you know, which would have been crazy. Nate and I have both gotten one right. This week, I'm doing something a little more crazy. Broncos, this would be a huge factor, and maybe we could pull off Nate's big-time upset. I predict the Broncos are going to force three turnovers this week, two interceptions and one fumble recovery. Okay, yeah, that's definitely big. Definitely going to be tough, but would increase our, our chances. And I think if we achieve my Hail Mary along with yours, that we will probably win this game, and my prediction will be true. And mm-hmm. my Hail Mary is that Stefan Diggs will be held to under 60 receiving yards and no touchdowns. Um, now, that's not like a super crazy stat line, but you got to remember how well Diggs is playing and how – empty our defensive backfield is yep. and let me let me remind our listeners when nate predicted this for tyreek hill the broncos did it and we almost won that game yes so, so i mean i just gotta stick with it and hope it helps our chances and makes me look not like an idiot with my uh, score prediction i believe if we had bryce callahan this game your prediction might have come true yeah that's true that's true mm-hmm. um so that will conclude our fifth episode. As always, we, we appreciate all of our supporters who listen, download, and share our name to others. Tune in next week for yet another episode. Once again, I'm Nate. I'm Mark, and we're the Appalachian Broncos.